reading for the second Sunday of Advent comes from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. May the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. A day or so ago, I was on my phone, I was scrolling through YouTube, as I tend to do sometimes when I'm wasting a little time, just kind of looking at the videos and seeing the little brief snippet that would pop up. And I happened across one that kind of caught my attention for like three seconds, and I thought, oh, that's kind of weird, but it, but it did catch my attention. And it was intended to be an extension of the ongoing story known as Back to the Future. It was actually called something along the lines of Back to the Future 4, the story continues, something along that lines. I don't know if you're familiar with Back to the Future. It's a movie trilogy. It's, it's beloved in nerd culture, but it dates all the way back from, the, from 1985 to the early 90s, so it's when these three movies came out. And the whole premise of this story, it really focuses in on this one dude, Marty McFly, who, whose friend and inventor creates a time machine out of a DeLorean car, which is weird, but anyway. And he travels forward and backwards through time and the, the events that happen, the things that he participates in, the, they, they have ripples through the course of time. Now, that in itself has some big existential ideas that I really don't want to get into. But more so what I'm thinking about is the encounters that he has with different individuals that he's actually related to over the course of these three movies. Now, in the first movie, he goes from 1985 back 30 years to 1955, and this guy, he's about 17 or 18 years old, and when he's there, he actually meets his mom, who's about the same age as, as him in that point, and then he also meets her immediate family, including her younger brother, who's a baby, so this is his uncle, and he says something that kind of makes me chuckle just a little bit, and it carries through some of the other ones. He's like, oh, so you're my uncle. That's the first thing, the first movie. Now, starting in the second movie, things start to get a little bit wonky. Now, in the second movie, he goes forward 30 years. So he goes from 1985 to 2015. We actually crossed it here about seven years ago. And he meets his son. And here's the weird part. Here's where I'm starting to really latch into things. His son looks utterly identical to him, probably because he's played by the same actor. But his son literally looks exactly like him. In the third movie, he goes back 100 years. He goes from 1985 to 1885. 
and he meets his great, great, great grandfather, who also looks identical to him, played by the same actor, not to mention his great, great, great grandmother, who looks exactly like his mom, played by the same actress. And I got to wondering through this whole thing, I wonder if that's how genetics really work. Now, I've noticed pictures of people from different, different uh, generations within a family who at the same time look kind of similar, so maybe there's something to it. And if I also think about it, Facebook is really good at confusing pictures of my daughter and my mother-in-law, so maybe there's something to this. But I can't help but think typically genetics probably don't really work that way. But what's more on the nose and what I want you to think about is how over the course of time, things can remind you of someone or something else because that is important when we consider this story and this individual known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a short but important role and a short but important part of the gospel stories. He is featured in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, every single one of them feature John the Baptist. And so whenever that happens, it's worth paying attention to. John was a contemporary of Jesus. They were actually born right about the same time. They were related to one another. Their mothers were, were somehow relations. John was about six months older than Jesus, so they were living about the same time. But John had a different role, an important one, as the forerunner of Jesus. Now, John was an interesting guy. Again, we don't know a ton about him. Most of what we know about his early life and, and some of his background and such, we hear from Luke's gospel. Here, we just kind of pick up with John the Baptist, but we hear about some of his description, and we hear about where he's at. He is doing ministry out in the wilderness along the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River kind of runs along the eastern side of the Holy Land or of Israel or Judah, whatever you want to call it. And it's this river, and there would have been stuff around it, but it wasn't heavily populated. A lot of the area, of that area, is wilderness, and that's where he was at. He was, he was out doing this ministry of baptism of repentance. Now, we hear some other things about him. Not only is he active out in the wilderness and not in the religious center, which would have been Jerusalem, or even in the, the local synagogues of one of the, uh, in one of the communities, but we hear about the way he's dressed. We hear he wears camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he eats locusts and wild honey. Here's why that's important. For, for us hearing that today, it's like those are some really weird, random details to share. But... For the people at that time, this would have instantly cued their, their minds to think about another prophet from centuries before known as Elijah. Elijah was one of the most powerful prophets, one of the most important prophets, certainly not the only prophet, but definitely a big name when we consider the Jewish prophets from centuries before. And they represented a time when the voice of God would speak through a person for the people, and that's a big branch of time. So John the Baptist, his appearance, his demeanor makes them think Elijah. And that's important because various prophecies over the years have said Elijah will return as the forerunner to the Messiah. So all of this is kind of tied together and important. John was considered to be the last of the prophets, and he represents a bookend, the tail end of one period of history, a large period of history in which God kind of approached the people in a specific way through the prophets. If we think about the other end of that bookend, the other end of this prophetic period, we find a guy named Samuel. Now, Samuel also represented a time of transition. 
He was the representative of the transition out of the time of the judges in Jewish history. The judges were strong leaders, but they were probably a little bit more like tribal-type leaders, and they would sort of lead the people. But they were not kings. They were not monarchs. They were not royalty in that sensibility. But Samuel was both a prophet as well as the last judge. So his time represented this transition from the judges into something new, and that new thing in that period of history was the monarchy, the kings. Samuel, as prophet, anointed the first two kings of Israel, first Saul and then a few years later David, and they were active about a thousand years before Jesus was around. So Samuel started that period, and then we went through this time, this period of history in which God acted to varying degrees of success because of the varying degrees of success of those different monarchs over the course of a thousand years, and then that brings us up to John. That's a lot of history that's important to consider as we see these different portions of history in which then God introduces something new for the Jewish culture. And then now, through John, or what actually John is foretelling, God is ushering in this new period of history, not just for the Jewish nation, but for all of humanity. And that's what John's mission was about. Now let's think about John's mission. Again, we mentioned it before. He's out in the wilderness along the river. He needs to have the river because of the prevalence of water. Water is important in his ministry. He's talking about a ministry of baptism of repentance. Well, what in the heck is that all about? The idea of repentance and understanding of repentance is important. Now, typically when we think about repenting, we think about, oh, I have to feel bad because I did something wrong. And that's not wrong. But that's not really on the nose for what John is talking about. The literal translation, the literal understanding of of the word for repentance is to turn back to, to turn away from, to reorient yourself away from one thing back to another thing. Well, and what's he talking about? He's talking about reorienting ourselves, turning ourselves back to God, away from sin and brokenness. That's why we talk about the confession of sins, but turning back away from that, back to God. John's ministry, even though we don't hear much about it in this story, must have been pretty lengthy. I can only imagine that it was going on for a while because let's think about it. 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist was walking around, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have the nightly news. None of that stuff for word to spread. So it would have to be person to person to person spreading the word of this random guy out there in the wilderness who's proclaiming this this out of nowhere, very strange, very countercultural message, maybe we should go check it out. And we hear that people are coming from all over to check it out. Some of them like what, what they hear, and they're baptized by John. And some of them were, were there and were kind of like, well, I wonder why they're there. We hear that the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. A lot of times in the Gospels, those two groups get lumped in together, but they really shouldn't. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two very diametrically opposed uh, groups that had very distinct and very different understandings of the proper way to live out your faith, something that we call piety. This is the way that your faith is lived out day by day by day. Now, they both wanted to spread their way, their understanding, their way of doing things, and would sometimes align themselves with some of the more political-type situations or the, the political authorities in order to help make that happen. These are various things that we hear about, not unheard of today either, is it? But 
That's these two groups. Now, we hear that they've come out to that, and John calls them out. He's like, you brood of vipers, what are you doing here? And then he says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. All of this is interesting when I think about, about these different things that are coming up and that are going on. And, and why is John important? Why was this message attracting so many people? And it did. It attracted a lot of people all the way up to the king at the time, a guy named Herod Antipas, who would eventually uh, arrest John and have him killed because John got a little uppity with him. But what was it about it that was attracting so many people? Well, on one hand, he was the first prophet in a long time. He was the first person really speaking for God in a long time. And his message was pointing to something else to come. Remember, they thought Elijah based on the way he looked. And so that then keys them in, the Messiah is coming. Some people even thought maybe John was the Messiah, but he knew better. That's the thing I appreciate a lot about John. He knew who he was and he knew who he wasn't. Are you the Messiah? No. One is coming after me who is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This speaks to the action that John underwent within his ministry of baptism. Now, this is an old, old tradition. I've kind of talked about this before. Maybe you've heard me talk about it before, that there was a tradition when you would go out to war and you would take the spoils of war. You would have to either purify or, or ritually cleanse an item or an article before you could utilize it. If it was like a clay pot or something of that nature, something that could stand up to fire, you would literally pass it through fire and it would be purified through fire. But there are certain things, i.e. like human flesh, that don't do really good with fire. And so rather than being purified through fire, it will be ritually clean through water. And this is the washing of baptism that John is up to a baptism of repentance. Turn away from the brokenness that's a part of all of us. Reorient yourself back to God and be ritually cleansed in the water. That was what he was doing. But now he points us to something different, something that really kind of catches my attention when we think about the idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I don't know about you, but the idea of being purified through fire sounds a little radical. It sounds a little bit more than I think I can wrap my head around. It sounds kind of extreme, doesn't it? So clearly, whatever this is that John is pointing out that the Messiah is going to do, it is more than we can figure out. It is more than we can handle, and it is certainly more than John himself can do. Now, here's the thing. John goes on as he starts to talk about this coming Messiah and this baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. And, and he begins to kind of talk about some things that I believe move us past this immediate season that we're in of anticipation for the coming Messiah and the perhaps joyful idea of, of, the, the, of the birth of Jesus that we will celebrate at Christmas that we know now after the story. And it begins to look farther down into that unknown future, something I tend to call end timesy. John says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather the grain into the granary, and he will burn the chaff in unquenchable fire. That, to me, begins to start pointing us in that unknown realm out there, and I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you hear things like that, your brain kind of starts to go to the idea, the sensibility that I fear permeates far too much of Christian understanding, and it goes into the idea of God is going to gather all the good people and send them to heaven and all the bad people he's going to burn in hell. That's what I hear. 
And I can't help but think maybe even John kind of had that idea just a little bit too. But then we got to thinking about it. And folks, the gospel that we profess, the gospel that says that Jesus did something different, that God through Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection has done something bigger, has done something more, has done something that is too big for us to ultimately understand, but made the promise that it is for all. This is the new thing that John was foretelling that Jesus would usher in that I believe happened 2,000 years ago, but I also believe that it's both done and not completed. It's both now and not yet, and that is kind of weird, isn't it? The promise of the gospel says that forgiveness is possible, that God's grace is freely given, that it is offered to all of us, and that the brokenness and sin and, and messed upness of this reality that we are all a part of and is a part of us has somehow been overcome even in the times when it does not feel like it. That's the gospel, and it's a mystery, and it's weird, and we can't really explain it, and yet we find hope in it, and we find joy in it. But it's also difficult, and sometimes we can't wrap our heads around it because it's too big for us. All of these things are all mixing around in this great big mixing bowl, if we want to use that analogy, to try and make us question or make us wonder, what is it that God was up to? What was it that John was pointing at? Now, here's why I think this is important to zero in on. When we start thinking about that, what I believe to be a flawed understanding about the end timesiness and the judgment and the separation that's going to happen, and we think it's like good people going this way and bad people going this way, I think we're missing the mark. John uses the analogy of wheat, of, of threshing, of, of us, and, and what's important to remember is those two different things, they're part of the same plant. The grain, that which is desirable that God will haul in, that's part of the plant. But part of the very same plant is that is the chaff. And the chaff is the stem and the leaves, all the parts that were important in the growth and the development of that single plant to make that fruit even possible. And while it might no longer be desirable, it was still a part of the life that creates something good. Here's why I think that's important for us to remember as we consider that seemingly judgmental type thing that's going to happen out there in the unknown future, that God will pass judgment on that about each one of us that is good and desirable as well as that which is broken and flawed. And I believe fully that God will look at every single one of us, me, you, everyone, gather in that which is good and desirable, if we want to call that our soul or our essence or that which makes us us, whatever that is, God will gather that into the barn, which sounds like heaven if we want to use that word, and that which is broken and flawed that is a part of all of us, and it is a part of all of us without exception, that will be cast away. I believe that's what John is pointing out and that Jesus will somehow make possible and that ultimately God will do. That's the promise of the gospel. And the promise of the gospel that we read in the scriptures throughout the course of the scriptures that I appreciate so much is that it is for all people. That every single one of us are broken and flawed and yet also called good by God. And we can orient our way, our, our lives in a way that reflects that and turning to the one who has already done something about it. This is the promise of the gospel. 
that for us, it's both past tense and future tense because Jesus has been born. Jesus has lived. He has died and he has risen again to overcome the powers of sin and brokenness and death on our behalf. The work is already done. And when we turn back to God, we find that offer and that work of grace and mercy and love already given to us every single time. Now, here's the thing about all this. As you hear me saying this, as you hear me talking about this, perhaps you're wondering, well, is it really for all people? And I believe it is. I believe with every atom of my being that it is for all people, and that means all people. Jesus himself, as he was hanging on the cross, says, as I am lifted up, I am gathering all people to myself, and I can't help but think all involves everybody. Maybe that makes you wonder, well, isn't the church really good at passing judgment about saying who's in, who's out? Isn't that boring? What's the point? That's the point that John almost seemed to be making when he starts talking about that end timesy stuff. And I can't help but good as John was, he missed the mark just a little bit too. He pointed us in good directions, but he still kind of missed the mark because he was passing judgment on individuals who he thought were doing it wrong, i.e. the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Likewise, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were passing judgment on everybody that they thought were doing wrong. And those people were passing judgment on everyone that they thought was doing it wrong. We all do it. Every single one of us do it. That's part of the broken nature that's a part of us, the judgmental nature that's a part of us, every single one of us. And yes, I involve myself in that as well. But here's the thing. Every time we sit over here, and we cross our arms and we get all huffy and we think, well, they can't be included. This can't be for them. They're doing it wrong. They don't believe correctly. They're doing things that we don't like. They, they act in ways that we don't agree with. We don't think that's okay. Guess what? We're breaking the first commandment because that place of judgment of what is good, what is in, what is not, that belongs to God, not to us. And in doing so, we are, we are forgetting that God is God and I am not. That's first commandment, folks. Every single time we fall in that trap, we find ourselves over here, and then we too are in need of repentance, and we need to turn back to the grace and mercy of God, which is freely given to us every single time, but that's where we're at. Here's the thing. The gospel tells us the mercy and the love and the grace of God is freely given to all people, and we can live our lives right now in a way that reflects that hope that joy and the reality of that promise. We can live over here or we can be stuck over here trying to pass judgment on who's in, who's out and worry ourselves into a tizzy over something that we ultimately don't make the call on. We have the tendency to be on both sides of the line. But folks, it's a lot more hopeful over here. As we look forward to the celebration of the birth of Jesus in a few more weeks here at Christmas, let us remember what it is that he accomplished, what it is that God ultimately did and ultimately invites every single one of us to be a part of. That's what we are called to do, to live our lives in a way that reflects the joy and gratitude and peace and happiness and hope that's found in the gospel and then to invite others into it. They can either choose to step over there or not. That's not up to us. But I do believe that God's promise is for them. And if God's promise is for them, it's because God's promise is for everybody. And if God's promise is for everybody, then folks, that means it is for you. 
the gospel is both incredibly individual and incredibly widespread all at the same time. And yes, that is mind-blowing. And yes, that is perhaps more than we can handle and perhaps more than we can wrap our heads around. And that's okay. We don't have to have it all figured out in order for it to still be true for us. May we hold on to that in the season of anticipation, trusting that God is going to do what God says and that we are included in it.